extremely happy to be joined by Neil Berger of Eagle View Capital Management. Neil, great to have you here. How are you doing? Thank you, Jack. I'm well. Thank you for having me. Glad to hear. So, uh, Neil, you've been in the business, the hedge fund business for a long time. I want to hear about your, your journey, but I also want to hear about the absolutely exemplary performance that you had uh, last year. You launched a contrarian macro fund uh, uh, within your, your, your suite of funds in April 2021. And that fund for the year 2022, when the S&P 500 was down, the uh, bonds were, were down, everything was down, crypto was down, that your fund was up 163%. So I want to say, number one, congratulations. I want to know, how do you do it? First of all, thank you. Second of all, uh, as you said, everything was down and and we bet that everything was going to be down. So that's a simple answer uh, as to how we did it. Um, I can elaborate a little bit more as to why we bet that way and what the thesis was that that caused us to uh, to bet that way. But um, the simple answer is, um, you know, as a hedge fund, we're able to uh, to take advantage of betting uh, that the market would go down, uh, both stocks and bonds, and and that's what we did. So you were betting that stocks. You shorted stocks and you shorted in, in bonds, and I imagine Correct. you must have done it to a quite large size. Yes, we were uh, pretty aggressive. Um, you know, as the opp- when the opportunity set is big, um, we bet big, and I believe that the opportunity set was big. And uh, as it turns out, it was it turned out to be correct, and and the market cooperated with uh, with the thesis that we had. The market definitely cooperated with your thesis, and um, you know, stocks and bonds sold off together. Which, as you know, is very rare. In fact, the the uh, negative correlation between stocks and bonds is part of the reason why you know investment advisors put a lot of people into the 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Diversified stock and bond portfolio does so well so much of the time. Why did you go against that and sort of take a thesis that was uh, you know a, a direct attack on the 60-40 portfolio? Uh, what gave you such confidence? I suppose it dates back, uh, you know, even a decade prior. Um, both stocks and bonds rallied together. So, um, you know, everybody likes to point out uh, that the 60-40 model failed on the downside, but it actually worked um, quite well, anomalously well uh, when markets went up. So as you said, historically, stocks and bonds have been somewhat negatively correlated, but for 10 or 12 years prior, we actually saw bonds rallying, you know, interest rates coming down and stocks rallying at the same time. So. Uh, and, and, and so one has to think about what was the reason for that? And you know, the reason for that, in, in my opinion, and I'm fairly confident about it, um, is, is one reason and one reason only. And that was the $25 trillion of liquidity that the global central banks injected into the system, uh, an ocean of liquidity, initially in response to the global financial crisis and, and later on in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And, um, you know, the, the, the collateral effect of that, the initial collateral effect of that was massive asset price inflation. So um, nobody can tell me that uh, having $19 trillion of, of sovereign debt trading at negative nominal interest rates, uh, Germany, for example, German bunds traded at negative 70 basis points. Nobody can tell me that that's normal in, in a universe and, and explainable and rational. Uh, nobody can tell me that it's rational or explainable or normal um, that the global economy should screech to a halt in response to the pandemic, but yet the stock, the stock, the stock market goes up like a rocket ship. Um, that's just not uh, normal and explainable and rational. Um, nobody can tell me that it's rational or normal that um, you know 
the proliferation of, of certain NFTs, you know, trading at $69 million, I'm referring to people or things like that, is, is a rational occurrence. And, but yet, this is factual. These things happen. And so we have to think about why did it happen? And so public equity valuations, private equity valuations, uh, $19 trillion of sovereign debt trading at negative nominal interest rates, uh, NFTs, uh, 18,500 cryptocurrencies, uh, the SPAC boom. These are all different stripes of the same zebra, the zebra being um, the $25 trillion of liquidity injected into the system. And when you inject $25 trillion into the system, you're going to get a collateral impact of that. And the initial collateral impact uh, was massive asset price inflation across the board. So as you said, you know, both stocks and bonds and cryptos and rare, you know, Rolex watches and baseball cards and, you know, NFTs and, and, and every, you know, Dogecoin and anything you want to point to was the beneficiary of that tremendous amount of liquidity infusion. And, um, you know, the, unfortunately, the secondary collateral effect of that liquidity infusion was um, consumer price inflation around the world. It took a, a long time for that to develop and to, to become uh, seen. And uh, But prior to, to recently, um, consumer price inflation is somewhat of a unicorn. You know, it's something that um, anybody under the age of 60 maybe has not uh, has heard about, but really hasn't experienced a, in their lifetime. Um, you know, and, and it's become as, you know, the, is, we're hearing about this thing called ins- consumer price inflation, but is it extinct? Does it really exist? Uh, we haven't really seen it, at least in the, in the US. Um, elsewhere around the world, there is consumer price inflation in certain countries. So the secondary collateral of that being consumer fr- price inflation, um, that is something that's central, you know, whereas the central banks are not trying to kill bull markets in general, they don't care if there's a bull market in Solana or there's a bull market in uh, Dogecoin or CryptoPunks. They, but what they care about is that if there is consumer price inflation around the world, as a result of the ocean of liquidity they injected into the system, that's something that they have to address. And uh, that's the bet that we made, that they would address it by reversing 180 degrees their posture towards liquidity from a liquidity, going from liquidity infusion posture to a liquidity extraction posture. And so it's logical to believe that if you believe that markets rallied and did what they did simply because the central banks injected enormous amounts of liquidity into the system, and that provided a tremendous tailwind for all asset prices, it's very logical to believe that as they extract liquidity in an effort to rein in uh, inflation around the world, that um, that would provide a, a tailwind against asset prices of all stripes. And that's exactly what we saw. We saw stocks go down. We saw bonds go down. We saw cryptocurrencies go down. We saw NFTs go down. Everything that basically was the beneficiary of the ocean of liquidity has started to come down. And this, you know, just like it was a multi-year process to add in the liquidity, you know, over a period of 12 to 14 years, central banks added in the $25 trillion of liquidity. Extracting that liquidity will also be a multi-year process that that began, uh, you know, uh, last year in earnest. The Fed just started to allow $85 billion a month of bonds to roll off their balance sheet starting in September of last year. And the ECB, the European Central Bank, will start allowing 15 billion euros per month to roll off starting in upcoming in March. So this is just a process that has only started to get underway. And I believe will provide a, a headwind against all asset prices in much the same way that the liquidity infusion provided a tailwind against uh, in supporting all asset prices. Hmm. Um, Neil, the argument that central banks are going to remove liquidity, this will be a huge headwind for, for assets. 
in retrospect, you know, it, it seems obvious because you were clearly right for, for 2022, but you know, you've been in, you know, I'm a, I'm a young guy. So I feel like young people can say, Oh, central banks are going to do this. I'm going to go very short. I, but I feel like, you know, you've been in the industry in a long time and people who make very large bets because they think, uh, you know, central banks will, uh, not support asset prices haven't done well, you know, let's just say over the past 15 years or, or 20 years. I mean, going back to Greenspan, um, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I feel like over the course of your career, you must have seen people take bets saying, oh, the J- there's no way the Japanese, uh, uh, bank of Japan can do this. There's no way that your yields can't go negative. Right. Um, right. but, but, but they did. So, so what gave you such confidence that this was the one, you know, this was the one time that, uh, things would, would really fall and, and central bankers would allow, uh, a, a, a giant mis uh, a huge repricing across all assets. Sure. So as you said, um, historically, it's been very difficult to make money uh, from the being a bear, you know, from the bearish side. Most people have made their money on Wall Street uh, being bullish. Um, and uh, as you alluded to in Japan, um, they don't call uh, the trade of trying to short Japanese interest rates, the widowmaker trade for, for no reason. So it, it, it is a more difficult trade. I am a, a trader. A lot of the people that you allude to and that we know about in the markets are portfolio managers, you know, so they have to make large bets and they kind of have to sit with it no matter whether um, the market uh, price action is confirming uh, their thesis or not. So I had the luxury of being able to wait until uh, the trend of the market started to confirm the fundamental thesis that I had. And ultimately, the price action is the Bible. And so uh, when markets are going down, um, and when we started to have a downtrend, uh, and I had the fundamental thesis in place, although I didn't uh, play it aggressively until I got confirmation from the price action in the market that uh, both stocks and bonds, which is what I chose to play in, I didn't short cryptos or anything like that, but I could have. Uh, but when I got confirmation from price action that the trend was pointing down, um, everything sort of aligned. So I had the fundamental thesis along with the price action uh, where markets were in a bear market. Uh, you know, supporting it, and I was able to to bet very aggressively when uh, when I had those conditions in place. And when did you get that confirmation? I think the uh, stocks peaked maybe November of 2021, and I, I remember January 1st they were near their all time highs, but they dropped like a stone, and 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 bonds fell. So so yeah, walk us back to you know early 2022 maybe late 2021 when you you had a thesis you were sort of dipping your toe in the water i think i'm right and if i'm right this could be big but i don't know if i'm right uh what was the process of, of you getting confirmation and, and your conviction going up to, to place this bet on uh very large sure that's a good question so we launched the fund in april of 21 uh with this fundamental thesis um recognizing that uh the price action hadn't yet supported the fundamental thesis um that that we had uh, that I had. And um, so I traded throughout 2021 very cautiously. Um, in fact, not much at all, actually, because the S&P, I believe, was up roughly 27% in 2021. So, um, you know, as a trader, you know, the old adage of cutting your losses quickly or, you know, you, you know, again, like I said, price action is the ultimate Bible here. Um, if it's just not working and I'm not getting satisfaction, uh, I'm not a glutton for punishment, you know. So uh, if I lose money and uh, I try to make some short positions and it doesn't work out, then uh, I'm going to stop, you know. Uh, maybe come back again and try again a little bit later. Um, and if it still doesn't work, um, I'm going to I'm going to stop doing that. So in the year 20, we did launch in April of 2021. 
I re really can't publicly disclose uh, performance information, but let's just say we didn't lose, we didn't make, you know, so, you know, broadly speaking. So um, 2021 was a year that um, the price action really didn't confirm uh, the, the thesis, the fundamental thesis. So as a good trader, because not only does one have to have the right thesis, but one also has to, uh, that, that's sort of the white collar part of the job. You know, the blue collar part of the job is actually the trade implementation and managing the risk and um, knowing when to step on the gas pedal a little bit harder and knowing when to take your foot off the gas pedal and put your foot on the brakes. Um, that's all part of the trading aspect of the job. So um, we really didn't have confirmation that the thesis was playing out. Uh, at least um, the market wasn't confirming this until very early in 2022, uh, 2022, sorry. Um, and really, uh, as you said, the peak was right around the beginning of the year. And, um, you know, markets started to sell off. And uh, it's not just looking at trends, trend lines. I mean, in a very technical way, you know, I'm just more of a, you know, qualitative type guy. But, you know, just looking at the price action. How does the market respond to good news? How does the market respond to bad news? Um, you know, the momentum of the market, um, you know, uh, versus how it was trading in years prior. You know, does it have the same energy to the upside? Um, or does it have different energy to the downside? So it's it's somewhat of a qualitative assessment, having been a trader for 33 years, that um, the market was just trading a bit different, and so we went with it. And it and nothing nothing reinforces um, more than satisfaction. So we were getting satisfaction, and we were winning to it. So we kept going, and ultimately the trends uh, started to develop in our direction. Right, and and uh, you know, without revealing your, your your special sauce, what was it about the price action that you you identified? And you also said something really interesting about how the market was reacting to news. So if a, a stock market rallies on bad news, that's a sign the stock market wants to go up. If it rallies, if it sells off on good news, you know, we, we might be uh, in, in a little bit of a bear market. Um, yeah, t tell us about that. And then what were the what were the news items of the day? I think inflation. Uh, unfortunately, I'm trying to pull it up now. You know, it was rising. I mean, there's always inflation numbers every month. There's always economic information. I don't, I don't recall any individual piece of news that I, I responded to. But as you said, um, you know, uh, if if a if a piece of news is bullish, and we all we all know, you know, when news is bullish, right? If it, you know inflation is better than the market expects, or employment is better than the market expects, whatever, you know, that might be bearish for bonds, bullish for stocks. You know, we all know what bullish and bearish indicators are. Uh, but as you said, it's the market reaction to that. So you know, if um, you know, in my history, um, based upon a piece of information, if the if, if the market should be up 10, let's just say, and be hypothetical, and it's actually up eight, that's a piece of, piece of information that tells you something about the stat of the stature of the market at that time, that maybe the bulls aren't in complete control, and that there is um, their selling pressure underly, underlying the, the market, which has caused something that technically, theoretically, you know, this is all qualitative assessment, but should be up 10, instead it's up seven or eight, you know. And so that's sort of a little hint to tell you that, hey, you know, I've seen this pattern before. Um, it really should be up 10, but it's really not up that much. Uh, you know, it's kind of telling me a piece of information as to who's got the control in the market, whether it's the bulls or the bears. Um, conversely, if uh, just to stay with my example, if something should be up 10 and it's up 15, then then we know that, you know, maybe the market, um, the balance of power at that moment is better buyers, you know, uh, for whatever reason, short covering or people getting long or people being aggressive. Uh, so always looking for that demand supply equation in the market between buyers and sellers to determine, um, you know, who's got the balance of power, whether it's the whether it's the bulls or the bears, you know. And uh, you know, again, if the piece of information is 
is is mildly bearish, but you get a major reaction to the downside on it, um, that's also a piece of information. So it's not always exactly what the information is. It's 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 more often how the market responds to that information that's the more relevant aspect of it. And in January and February, what was the Federal Reserve saying? How closely were you uh, paying attention to, to them? I think they had uh, they were tapering, uh, had not done quantitative tightening yet. They did not hike interest rates uh, in January, but they I think they indicated that they would in March. So the spot interest rate of, uh, of Fed fund zero was basically at zero. But the two year was going up because it was pricing in these these cuts, and then you know the the ten year, the thirty year, they were selling off as well. So yeah, what were you sort of noticing in the bond market, and how did that relate to your, your thoughts on uh, Fed and and inflation? Right. So so for years I've been on guard uh, to note that you know the the liquidity infusion that was injected into the system uh, was always meant to be a temporary uh, situation. You know the the central banks had tried on numerous occasions. To withdraw that liquidity because it's just they're not in the business necessarily of um, you know influencing the market to such a great deal. Um, you know the, the market should be a free market where you know private buyers and sellers uh, have um, you know uh, price discovery that's that's uninterrupted by global central banks. So that's the more natural condition. So I was always on guard for when the Fed would or global central banks would uh, reverse course and try to. Extract the liquidity that they had added to the system, unnaturally influencing prices and causing some of the collateral effects. I, su- I suppose the most startling one being nineteen trillion dollars of sovereign bonds trading at negative interest rate, negative nominal yield. So you actually had to pay the government to to own their their bonds, um, which is just an unnatural condition. Um, but you know, so so the central banks know that, and and they were, uh, you know, there was always going to be a time when. Uh, they were going to extract it, and and they got interrupted from doing that because of the COVID nineteen pandemic. And not only did they were they not allowed to do that, they actually had to add more liquidity to the system to to say you know to help you know support the financial system during the crisis times. And so um, you know I think it was early in two thousand twenty one, um, maybe February, that the Bank of England was one of the first ones to say that they were going to let uh, they were going to start selling off some of their corporate bonds. That they had purchased. I mean, it's just unnatural for a central bank to be buying corporate bonds. I mean, this this is something that a um, private sector should be should be you know private investors should be buying the debt of of uh, corporations, not a central bank. Um, you know, so the Bank of England had said that they were going to sell their corporate bond portfolio, which I think was about twenty billion dollars, which is not a lot in the global scheme of things. Um, and you know, that was sort of the canary in the coal mine to start me thinking that okay, maybe the central banks. Um, you know that we're now that we're past the worst of the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, we're certainly you know many years past the global financial crisis. Uh, maybe the central banks are, are going to start thinking similarly, where they're anxious to start allowing the market to be a more freely tradable market that uh, has natural price discovery, unlike you know uh, unlike it was where they were so involved. So I was very much on guard for looking for hints from the central bank, um, and then eventually, and I'm not sure exactly. What the timing was, but they did announce that uh, you know central banks around the world announced that they were going to be normalizing their balance sheet is is, is the, you know what the term that they use for for um, that and and normalizing it was that they were going to cease buying uh, you know fixed income securities and they were actually going to let certain amount of fixed income securities roll off. Now central bankers um, you know in general move slowly. Um, but also don't want to cause any um, you know massive market disruptions. They don't want to cause a market crash or anything. So you know they announce it. They 
they move slowly and methodically to make sure that um, the markets can handle that, the economy can handle that. And, um, you know, seems like COVID-19 started to get a little bit better um, in terms of at least its uh, lethalness. And certainly people are still dying from it, but it, it uh, uh, you know, the initial, uh, you know, lockdown <clears throat> and the global economies around the world started to um, ease a bit where people were sort of getting back to work and, and life was getting somewhat back to normal. And so um, the central bank started to normalize the balance sheet. And um, I believe that, you know, when they get the biggest buyer in the world, uh, you know, um, not not participating in the market any longer, um, it's natural to expect that prices are going to fall. And and they did. So um, I just kept going with it. It's as, it's as simple as that. Ultimately, it affects all asset prices. You know, um, obviously, the central banks weren't buying cryptocurrencies. Uh, and, and letting those roll off, they were their their vehicle of choice is bonds. Um, but when when bonds start to roll off, and that has to go be absorbed by private sector, um, there's less liquidity to buy more speculative things like like cryptos and and NFTs and and even stocks. So it has a spill on effect, um, just in the same way that it had an effect um, when they were injecting liquidity <laughs> into the system. They weren't buying cryptocurrencies. But it, it uh, you know, filtered in initially through, you know, purchasing of the bonds, which provides uh, investors with, with money. That money gets divided up in many different ways and ultimately finds its way into some more speculative aspects of uh, financial markets, um, including the private equity space and, and venture and all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, uh, stocks and, and uh, other, other securities. Even though stocks and bonds both sold off in 2022, I've heard, and I think it kind of seems to me that the sell-off was of a slightly different nature in stocks. It was something of an orderly panic, uh, sorry, an orderly sell-off where, okay, we'll all get in line, we'll all sell, where in bonds, it really seemed like there, there was a, a true panic, a, a sort of a cascade of, of liquidations. Uh, is that fair to say? How would you uh, differentiate the the market conditions between those two markets? I'm, I'm obviously talking about prices, uh, but volume, liquidity, uh, sort of you know, bid-ask spreads, willingness of, of dealers to do, do deals. Um, I mean, did you get the sense that people were saying, I need to get out of this market at whatever price? Or were they saying, oh, maybe I'll take a little bit of risk off? I think in general, um, both the stock market sell-off and the bond market sell-off were fairly orderly. Um, you know, in the bond market, you actually have something that um, to hold on to that's supposed to anchor bonds, whether it's downside or upside, and that's the federal funds rate. So as the federal funds rate was being, you know, th that doesn't directly control the stock market. The stock market can still go up, even if the central bank is raising the federal funds rate. Um, but but it's hard for interest rates, you know, um, if the overnight rate is, uh, you know, four and a half, five percent, um, it's hard for the 10 year note to be, you know, 50 basis points, <laughs> you know, so so there's, you know, as the overnight rate goes up, because, you know, why would anybody buy 10 year bonds if you, if you could buy, you know, at 50 basis points, if you could buy, uh, you know, one year bills at, at 5%. And then it also goes to funding costs and things like that. So there is somewhat more of a, um, you know, a basis for why the fixed income, at least the, the sovereign fixed income markets trade the way they trade. They're very much tied towards central bank movements of, of interest rates. But in general, in terms of the trading activity, I can't point to any individual day or any individual week where there was a crash, you know, per se, and it was extremely disorderly, at least in the products that I trade, which is mostly the sovereign uh, debt, you know, as opposed to corporate corporate bonds or, um, you know, uh, mortgage securities or, or other types of uh, 
parts. But my understanding is everything was generally pretty orderly. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Let's move forward from January. So you started noticing that shorting everything is it's a trade that's working. So you do more and more of it. And uh, that, that trade continues to work. Uh, all the way, I think, till June. And uh, I think June 15th was the, uh, yeah, June 15th or 16th was the first time that the Federal Reserve uh, hiked by 75 uh, basis points. Uh, but paradoxically, even though you know after that week you had a sell-off, that was the beginning of the first real moderation uh, or, or rally, uh, bear market rally, I guess we can call it, um, from from June all about June all about to, to Jackson Hole. So, you know, I imagine because of the stellar returns that you had, not only were you right, but you, you must have... Uh, 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 sort of delved in and delved out and, and, and navigated those that that bear market rally um, ably. So so ha- yeah, tell tell us about that when the the price action was briefly you know for a few months moving against your thesis. Sure, those were challenging times, and there were a few episodes during 2022 when the S and P rallied you know maybe 500 points from the from the low point to the to the peak uh, before resuming its its downtrend again. And um, again, I'm a trader, and a trader needs to. Uh, certainly, we had hurt during during those periods. Not a fortune teller, um, but a trader needs to have uh, you know certain risk management. That when the market is going against you, you you lighten up, um, and even to the possibility of just getting flat. You know, we weren't long the market because it was against the thesis that we had, and it was against the the longer term trend. But um, you know, during those very vicious counter trend rallies, some of the some of the biggest market rallies uh, in history come as uh, you know counter trend bear market rallies. And so, um, you know, in short periods of time, maybe some of the biggest updates that we've ever seen uh, happen during these counter trend rally periods. So I have to be very vigilant as a trader to cut losses quickly um, when they occur. Uh, you know, only in hindsight, we see how far it went or how fast it went. So, you know, when you're living it real time, there's not an exact science to this. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we uh, we did a decent job of, of um Cutting, cutting our risk when it was going against us, taking some losses. But then when the market was turning back in our favor, we our, our performance was uh, positively skewed. So which means that we, we made more money um, when markets were in our favor than we lost when markets were going against us. And that really speaks to risk management and, and trading talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few more bear markets, uh, a, few, a few more rallies were to continue. Um, like October had a remark- remarkable month. And then we right now are, are in the middle of a rally uh, that began shortly after the De- December FO- FOMC meeting, the Fed, the Fed meeting. Uh, what have you made of the recent price action, and uh, you know which has moved a- against uh, the short everything trade? And uh, how are you weighing the, the risks and rewards right now? Sure. Um, so 
Justin, uh, you know, 33 years trader, um, nuance feel that the, the, the buying that's gone on, uh, you know, this year primarily um, is sub short covering, but uh, there's also some real money buying in, in the market. There's, there's real money that are, there's real people getting along here. Unlike a lot of the rallies that you alluded to last year of uh, during the bear market um, were sort of the, of the types that were vicious counter trend rallies, you know, short covering rallies. A lot of people who were short, maybe the macro guys, the CTAs, you know, uh, people that were, uh, you know, underinvested, whatever they may be, you know, were scrambling to buy the market. And those felt like uh, aggressive uh, counter trend, short, short covering rallies. This year uh, feels a little bit more like, obviously, there's some uh, short covering going on, but there's also real money buy. Um, and whether those people are going to be right or not, uh, I guess their thesis is that we're getting towards the end of uh, central bank tightening cycles, uh, that inflation is coming down. Um, you know, people are betting that it will continue to come down uh, to lower levels, uh, you know, to levels that are acceptable to the point uh, that not only will the central banks uh, stop tightening, but the market is actually pricing and easing at the moment that um, uh, economic activity will, will you know, become uh, so depressed and inflation will become so depressed that later this year, the Fed is, uh, let's say in the US, the Fed is not only going to stop tightening, but they're going to start lowering interest rates. I don't share that belief, uh, but that's what makes a market. <laughs> you know, um, I'm betting that those people are going to be wrong. Um, but again, I have to respect the price action above all else. Uh, the market is telling us something and I have to listen to what the market is telling us. I don't have to buy into it and be long, um, but I do have to be much more cautious in terms of establishing aggressive short positions when uh, the market is just not supporting that view. Um, I have to respect the market. I have to be, um, uh, you know, uh, I have to have no ego to suggest that I'm right and the market is wrong. Um, I do still believe that the larger thesis is central bank liquidity is really what is the uh, most important aspect of uh, the game here. Uh, but that's a long-term game. That's not something that may play out in a quarter or even in, even possibly in a year. And I have to make returns uh, and and protect uh, capital for my investors uh, on a on a much shorter time scale. And so um, I have to respect what's going on in the market. Uh, I and to me that translates into being a little bit less aggressive uh, until the price action dictates that uh, I'm right again. Um, and uh, you know I do believe that I will be right again, and I do believe that the markets will turn down both bonds and stocks and a variety of other products. But right now uh, the market is rallying and and. The market uh, is always right, um, even if it's just right for the time being. Um, the market is ultimately the 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 arbiter of right and wrong, um, and uh, like I said, the price action is the is the bible. Price action is the bible. Price action is king. Uh, Neil, you talk about liquidity and balance sheets, and I think uh, quantitative tightening is incredibly important. But it's very hard for you know me and, and amateurs just uh, to observe the balance sheet, whereas you know in, in enthusiastic people can just from their, their house and in, 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 um, in, uh, explore the bond market and the terminal rate and the forward rates curve. I think the terminal rates peaked out a little bit above, so uh, the, the highest point that the market is pricing that the Federal Reserve will hike to, uh, peaked out a little bit above 5%, which is where it was in the, the dot plots uh, in December. Um, but then since then, the terminal rate has been going down. So the absolute level of monetary tightness as, as determined by rates has been going down since November. And the pivot, the cuts have... Uh, more cuts have been b being priced in as well. So we have you know two uh, 
cuts being priced in for 2023, many more being priced up in, in, in 2024. And, and I also think, um, just as a you know uh, amateur observer, that a lot of the, the correlation between stocks and rates has been uh, very high on the positive side. That is, if the two-year jumps 20 basis points, that's not a day where stocks will will do well. Um, so, 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 yeah. H- how have you been uh, examining the, the, the relationship between the two-year or, or, or between rates and uh, uh, stocks? Like, would, would you think it's fair to say that a large part of the stock market rally is because of the easing of, of rates? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, sentiment tends to be uh, risk on or risk off. You know, at least um, uh, during the most recent periods. Um, today, you know, um, this is uh, uh, February third. We got the employment report today, and it was a huge upside surprise. You know, up over five hundred thousand. And uh, I'm watching the market, and bonds are are selling off, and and stocks are rallying. So, uh, which I suppose in theory should be logical. You know, if the economy is doing well, you know, stocks should rally. Um, and the bonds are telling you a little bit that uh, well, maybe there's not going to be as much easing as much easing as we as we had thought. Um, so the market is always sort of as new information comes to light, the market is always weighing things differently. Um, you know, each day, like when we get a surprise like today to the upside of employment doing very, very well, uh, at least as, as as the numbers suggested today, um, a little bit of that enthusiasm for rate cuts uh, down the road has um, come out of the market, um, at least on this one day basis that we're talking today. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, everybody talks about the terminal rate, but it's, it's a little bit of a silly statement because it's never really terminal, <laughs> you know, to maybe terminal for like a month or two months. I don't know, you know. And maybe talk peak rate is is better because the market is is suggesting that <clears throat> we're going to hit that rate and then we're going to start going down, you know. But the market is usually, you know, the pendulum swings too far to one side or too far to the other side. So the market is uh, that's what allows for speculators to to make profits when um, you know the uh, when the fundamentals or when the uh, you know the the reality. Uh, diverges from what the market is anticipating uh, and a speculator gets that right, that that provides a profit opportunity for the speculator. Of course, it also provides an opportunity for the speculator to lose money. But, uh, you know, so I, w- I would bet that the central banks, and this is what they're telling us as well, that rate cuts are off the table. They're not going to be cutting rates for this year. Um, the market is saying, we don't care what you say, Mr. Powell. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're going to believe that, that the economy is going to get so weak that an inflation is going to come down so aggressively that yes, you are going to cut rates. And so, um, you know, whether the Fed is going to be correct, uh, you know, ultimately they hold the guards, they can do what they want. But, um, you know, the market is uh, historically a pretty awa- amazing weighing machine that, um, you know, is the collective wisdom of, um, you know, millions of participants all over the world, some of whom uh, own the businesses directly or have direct information on their businesses as to whether they're able to raise prices. Um, and, and maybe the market is telling, telling us that, you know, um, those people that own businesses around the world and uh, who are senior executives and major companies around the world are just not able to raise prices and they're seeing it before the Fed is even seeing it. Um, so we just don't know. But, um, you know, that's why uh, for someone like myself, I have to, um, I have a view and I have a fundamental thesis but I can't stick to it uh, that dogmatically because um, you know the price action uh, just doesn't dictate it. So the best scenarios for me to 
to profit, which is why we made so much money in 2022, is when my fundamental thesis and the price action uh, coincide with each other. Um, so right now I've got uh, you know a certain fundamental thesis which is not being supported by the market price action, and I have to be much more timid in my uh, my approach um, because I have to respect that price action. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement: Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, Lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. How uh, are you thinking about the economy? As you said, we're recording on uh, Friday, February 3rd, where we just got a a, a major beat where uh, over half a million jobs were added. The unemployment rate in the U.S. is now 3.4%, causing some to say that the uh, health of the U.S. economy is strong. Do you agree with that? And how does that affect your outlook on your shorts of of respective uh, stocks and bonds? Because if the economy, uh, you know, if we plunge into a deep recession, I imagined uh, uh, you're short on socks may do quite well, but you're short on bonds may not, um, and and vice versa. So, so what do you think about the economy and how does that affect your outlook on, on stocks and bonds? Sure. So I'm going to say two things. One is um, I'm not in the prediction business. I'm in the observation business. Any Anybody that is in the prediction business, I feel it's a silly business to be in. Uh, you know, I feel like it's either naive, incredibly naive to think that you can predict, uh, you know, too far in advance, you know, the, the foreseeable horizon, maybe one or two months, um, Beyond that, so many variables are going to occur. Um, you know that over the 33 years that I've observed, people that are trying to predict the world um, and how incredibly wrong people are, and how incredibly wrong the consensus is, I've decided that it's just not a business that I want to be in. Is the prediction business, and so that, and so I'll, I'll tell you that all I can do is observe what's going on uh, as the information comes to light. And today we had strong employment. We've had initial jobless claims. These are these are observations. These are facts. These are not speculation. We've had initial jobless claims under 200,000 the last three readings in a row. Um, that was followed on by a strong employment report. So at this very moment, um, it doesn't seem like the uh, employment picture is weak at all. You know, we have a 3.5% unemployment rate. Um, I remember when people used to think 5% was full employment. Um, now we're at 3.5%. So certainly um, the employment picture, uh, I understand that there's a big divide between there's certain people that are certainly struggling and not employed, but broadly speaking, taking over the entirety of the economy, we're doing pretty well. As I and that's an observation; it's not a prediction. I don't know how the future is going to go, um, but there's no, nothing that I seem that I can point to that's going to suggest that it's going to change that in any material way. I'm not in the being right business. I'm in the money making business. So my investors don't pay me to be right on the economy. Um, they don't reward me for being right in my predictions. They reward me for making money in the form of incentive fees and uh, or in the form of certain management fees by by giving me money to, to manage. 
And so um, I don't mind if I'm dead wrong and I make money. Um, that's what my fiduciary responsibility is to my investors. Um, an economist, is their job is to try to be right. And if people want to listen to economists, that's fine. Um, but my job is not to be in the being right business. My, my job is to be in the money-making business. And so that's a you know, that doesn't mean I can't have a thesis that I'm thinking about and, and, and looking to see if the market confirms that thesis, but I have to be much more of a trader and I have to, uh, you know, uh, be following the price action and, and, and worry about things like making money as opposed to having an outlook that I have to stick to, um, you know, come hell or high water. Uh, do you think it's fair to say that uh, stocks have are pricing in something of a soft landing where inflation will continue to fall and earnings will grow at a modest pace and definitely won't decline. Um, and I, so I, I know you said you have a stronger view on stocks and bonds than you do on the soft landing recession, but uh, I mean, the uh, asset prices must be reflecting some sort of uh, prediction yeah. about the future. Right? Well, so what do you think it, the prediction it, it, is right now? Well, I'm observing what, what, you know, like I said, I'm not predicting, I'm observing. The market is pricing Goldilocks. I mean, the market is pricing that we're going to have a soft landing and that we're towards the end of uh you know the this inflationary episode that we that we saw um that the central banks are going to be uh you know maybe have one more modest rate hikes and that and that's pretty much it and then they're you know going to be forced to uh reduce interest rates because inflation will be so under control that there'll be no need to keep rates at the levels at which they they peak at you know some people call it the terminal rate um, and and that the economy um, will not tip into recession. I mean, and that's why the S and P is in the same spot as where it was um, basically in May of last year. You know, so we had all this tightening. You know, from the first tightening on, as you as you alluded to earlier, um, the the S and P is basically the same spot as it was uh, when the Fed first started tightening uh, interest rates. So um, again, that's not a prediction; that's an observation. <laughs> you know, um, and so it's factual that the market is pricing. Goldilocks. Now, whether the market is going to be right or it's not going to be right, um, that remains to be seen. That that's a prediction that I don't know, and nobody else knows, quite frankly. Not even Jay Powell doesn't know. Um, he's just following along with uh, information as we're receiving it. Um, but based upon something like you know recent jobless claims and today's employment report, it does seem like the economy is fine. Uh, based upon recent uh, inflationary uh, indicators, it does seem like inflation is coming off. It's certainly not coming off to the to the level yet that they look, would like it to be. The market is anticipating that it will, and and that is a prediction, <laughs> you know. And whether whether that rings true or not um, will will be adjudicated by the market in the months to come as we see new information uh, continuously come out of the market. Um, you know, my thesis, uh, you know, is more relevant is more related to liquidity in the market, and um, as opposed to central, you know. Uh, you know, central bank movements of the overnight interest rate or the movements of stocks at the moment, um, you know, in, in much the same way that, you know, there's, there was really no fundamental reason uh, that could be justifiable as to why global economy screeched to a halt during the COVID-19 pandemic and the market shot up like a rocket ship or that, you know, uh, $19 trillion of sovereign debt traded negative in terms of, you know, you had to pay governments to own their bonds. And and that was a really a function of the amount of liquidity that was sw sloshing around in the system um, added by the central bank. So my thesis is much more related to the movement of that liquidity by the central banks. Um, and that's a long, long um, time period where you're going to get you know rallies like we're getting now, and you're going to get sell-offs. 
but I just don't think that the next 10 years will be uh, resembling the previous 10 years when we had the, the liquidity infusion that we had, and now we have the liquidity extraction. So uh, on a shorter term basis, uh, which is people looking at things on a six month, one year, three month basis, whatever it may be, um, clearly the market is pricing uh, a soft landing and a, uh, a dramatic reduction of inflation, a, a ceasing of uh, rise in interest rates by global central banks, and um, in fact, uh, lowering of interest rates down the road. I feel like there are two definitions of liquidity. There's central bank liquidity. Are they expanding their balance sheet? Are they reducing their balance sheet? And then people combine it with the, you know, the Treasury General account, and they make all sorts of these, these equations about is liquidity high? Is it low? Is it rising? Is it falling? But then there's being in the market liquidity of, oh, I want to sell a large amount of assets, and my ease with which I can enter and exit positions is, is either large or, or small. I either have to pay a large fee or a very small fee. When liquidity is ample, I can get in and out no problem. When it's not, I have to pay dearly. Uh, do you are you noticing that both of those definitions when you when you were just talking about liquidity we're using only the central bank one only the the market one and to what degree are they, are they related because you see both yeah sure so um I was really just talking about the central bank one you know let's you know it'd be interesting maybe for your listeners to to pull up a chart of m2 money supply versus the s p you know uh so m2 money supply has a very high correlation to uh the movement of the s p and now m2 money supply is coming down quite sharply and um, you know, to me, that's a bit of a leading indicator. But that that speaks to more of a government liquidity. Um, liquidity in the market. You're talking about the market microstructure and and how the market functions, um, the health of the market functioning to help the th- system, the stability of the system of the financial system. And um, you know, during you know, it it has it surprisingly been quite smooth. It's gone through its episodes of a little bit, of, you know, you know, less liquidity. But at the moment, um, you know. That tends to happen during bearish market environments, you know, uh, or rapid sell-offs. You know, like March of 2020. You know, there, there was some liquidity issues in the market during during that time, and the central bank stepped in and, and helped the market uh, function a little bit better, um, and and it worked. Um, but basically, you know, the market right now uh, is functioning very well, and uh, people are generally able to move in and out of large blocks of securities. Um, you know, with the normal amount of slippage that they would normally incur based upon how much uh, they're moving. Um, so market liquidity, I think, is okay, uh, as you would expect. The market is um, quite stable, and uh, it's not in a panic uh, sell-off in, in either stocks or bonds. Uh, but the liquidity that I'm really referring to is more central bank liquidity and uh, central bank's balance sheet. Thanks, Neil. On whatever time horizon you want, you, you can choose which are you more bearish on, stocks or bonds, and why? Um, it's a good question. Um, I would say that... Uh, it, I don't know. I, I I think that probably bonds, um, you know, because bonds are anchor. You know, stocks can kind of do anything. You know, they can. You know, S and P can go up to five thousand or six thousand or, you know, whatever. Um, it's pretty hard to uh, to rationalize. Um, uh, let's say ten year Japanese interest rates, which I think are about thirty eight basis points, when um, when the Japanese inflation rate is running at four percent. Even if the Japanese inflation rate were running at two percent, um, it would still be hard to justify. Ten-year um, JGBs, Japanese government bonds trading at forty basis points. So, um, you know, there's a somewhat more rationality associated with with bonds. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what the most recent readings on inflation are, but Fed funds, you know, it's in the four, five, six percent, whatever it is, six percent in the U.S. Um, but you know, we have three and a half percent ten-year notes. 
So, you know, um, you're get you know, someone, if, if inflation were to just stay where it is currently, um, you would definitely have a negative, you know, 200 and something basis point, uh, um, return, you know, real return. So that's not rational. It's just not rational that people are going to, uh, invest for a negative real return. And so, um, the more natural condition is that there is some positive spread. Uh, there's some level of real interest rates, meaning, uh, uh, a real return, meaning after inflation, um, people are getting paid to invest their money. Um, uh, and, and that's the much more normal historical condition. And so based upon where inflation is today, um, and, and even if, even in a rosy scenario, if it comes down, um, the pricing structure of the fixed income markets, uh, across the world is, um, to use the academic term, uh, wackadoodle. <laughs> <laughs> while, while we're using academic terms, do you think this rally is a sucker's rally? Uh, I believe so. I, I, I'm I, my thesis is gonna is gonna remain, uh, you know, intact um, until something dramatic happens, and you know, maybe the central banks say, not only are we gonna stop letting our balance sheet roll off, but we're gonna start buying bonds again. You know, then obviously I would have to uh, reevaluate the thesis. Um, so I think that ultimately. Um, you know, a lot of people are very focused on Fed policy and, you know, inflationary pressures and, and that sort of thing. I'm focused on uh, what I think is a much more longer term issue. You know, um, you know, it would have been interesting and, and, and very appropriate, you know, if, you know, you always have economists going on TV, uh, whether it's Bloomberg or CNBC and, you know, over the last dozen years and uh, the, the, the reporters always asking, you know, well, what do you think about inflation? What do you think about, you know, oh, we had this inflation number. What do you think? Someone would have said, doesn't matter. I don't care. Central bank is adding liquidity by the market. <laughs> and what do you what do you think about the employment report? The employment report just came out, um, you know, a week. Doesn't matter. I don't care. The central bank is adding liquidity by the market. You know, um, what do you think about the COVID nineteen pandemic? You know, the global economy screeched to a halt. Doesn't matter. The central banks are adding liquidity by the market. That's it. And that's really all you had to know um, because that was the story. It did. All of the vagaries and all the movements associated with economic activity and and all the minutiae that people were focused on for the last 12 years amounted to one thing. And that was the market just went straight up, essentially. <laughs> you know, yet every, every time there was a dip, you bought it. Every time the market, you know, and you stayed long. And as and that's a function to me of central banks adding liquidity. So, so now, as central banks are extracting liquidity to the extent that they continue to extract liquidity, it's basically the the polar opposite, where none of this stuff really matters in the, in the big picture. It just creates trading opportunities where, you know, doesn't really matter what happened with employment or inflation. If the central banks are extracting liquidity from the system, sell the market. That's it. But I can't just do that, you know, without risk management because I'm a trader and I have to, I have to make money for my investors. So I can't just stand in front of a freight train. Right. Yeah. And uh, it goes without saying, you know, any guest on this program, it never gives investment advice. But I just want to underscore that, you know, you are a veteran of the business who is getting entering and exiting positions, constantly risk managing. You know, no one who's listening to this to say, oh, I, this guy, you know, had this X, Y return having this thesis, you know, I should do this. You know, everyone is, is responsible for their own risk. So with That's that dis disclaimer, Neil, um, you know, we've been talking about stocks and bonds as, as a monolith, but do you have any view on steepeners? Um, you know, because you said the 10 year, go to five or six percent um in that scenario is the spot rates you know still at five percent because or is it eight, you know seven or eight percent because if it's the former then th that curve would re-steepen likewise you mentioned the japanese uh japanese uh jgb market government bond market um are you more bearish on that than, than american stocks how would putting on a trade like that you know affect your view on the yen dollar which you know you may not want to have a view on 
Sure. So um, I am I am betting on a steepener at the moment. Um, it does seem like the central banks are nearing the end, uh, uh, at least pausing. You know, they call it the terminal rate, or some, I, I prefer to call it the peak rate. We don't know it's only a peak until it's until there's a new peak after that, if it, if there is one. Um, it could be the peak rate, uh, but it seems like the central banks, excuse me, are are nearing that end. Um, but yet the long end of the curve, you know, so the ten year sector, let's say, um, is not really reflecting, um, you know, the thesis that I have yet that you know as liquidity comes out of the system. So the short end is much more tied to central bank uh, influence versus the longer end, which is much more tied to uh, risk assets in in general. You know, if markets are selling off, you know, the long end will whip around, you know, more consistently with 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 risk assets. And so um, I am betting on the curve steepening. The Japanese government bond at thirty eight basis points um, is just it's it's also it's wackadoodle. Uh, the, the the problem is, you know, the Bank of Japan is very very strong central bank. They're very well capitalized. Um, they own, you know, something like a hundred percent, a hundred percent of all the TGBs. So, um, you know, that is a very, very controlled market. In fact, they don't uh, make any. Uh, they're not shy about even saying that it's not. They, they call it YCC, yield curve control. So they are actively in the market buying uh, the ten-year JGB anytime uh, the current ceiling for that is fifty basis points. They have a new central banker who's going to be starting there to replace Kuroda. Um, I think it's April. And I think Kuroda is just kind of, uh, you know, Japanese protocol might, uh, you know, suggest that they allow the new guy to shape investment policy um, in, in the new guy's vision. So he's probably not going to do much. It hasn't done much. He didn't do anything at the last bank and meeting, although they did raise the, the 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 ceiling and allow JGBs in December to rise from what their previous high level rate was 25 basis points. They allowed it to, to go to 50 basis points. But then in the most BOJ meeting, most recent BOJ meeting, um, they didn't do anything. So I do believe that they're going to gradually try to normalize, um, you know, their uh, their ten year rate uh, to be more consistent with the global economy because otherwise, um, you know, uh, it's just out of line and uh, it sets up this tremendous carry trade that exists where people borrow in a cheap in a country where it's cheap, you know, to borrow in in terms of interest rates and invest in higher yielding cu- countries and um, you know that uh, has an impact on the currency, but. Since I'm not really trading currencies, I'm not that involved in that. But um, there is somewhat of an, uh, you know, the Central Bank of Japan has to be aware that they have to move their interest rates more in line with the rest of the world, especially since their inflation is running at 4% now, and they were trying to get it up to the 2% target, and we've surpassed that. So, um, you know, maybe they'll allow, as, as the new guy takes takes office, they'll allow the the, um, the yield curve control to uh, to widen the band a little bit. Yeah, let's uh, let's let's end there. Um, best of luck with the trade, and and thank you, and thank you everyone for watching. Thanks so much. Forward guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro, or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.